It's wonderful to see all of you this morning. We thank the Lord for uh, the health and the means to be together uh, this morning, this week, and this season, as there continue to be some who are not able to, to do that. So we're praying for them, but we're thankful for what God's given us this morning. Now let me invite you to open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We begin a new chapter this morning in our walk through the Gospel of John. And one of the things that I'd like us to do in beginning here is to simply take a moment and notice what a leap we're about to walk our way into here as we come to chapter 5. Events speed up dramatically coming into this chapter. We have all, most of us have, have been here together through these first four chapters. Uh, we have seen the progression We've seen, in particular, with Jesus, interactions with individuals and with some relatively small groups. Uh, we have heard some general statements from our Lord, very powerful ones. He has transformed lives already. But he has been speaking sometimes in, in some vague ways. He speaks of having living water to offer um, and things like this. Just notice with me what will have come to the table by the time we finish chapter 5. Uh, we will have, in the course of this chapter, our first direct confrontation uh, about the Sabbath. That's verses 9 to 16. We will hear direct statements about a kind of equality with God in verse 18. Direct statements about Jesus to, I mean, this is to the public in front, and con confronting the, the leaders of the day. Uh, statements about Christ as a life giver. Verse 21, verses 26 to 29. He will directly claim himself to be the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Verse 39, verses 45 and 46. All of this will be out there by the time we finish this chapter. This is why... This is the first time in John where there's going to be direct confrontation, direct public confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. It has been coming, hasn't it? Even before he arrived on the scene, the Pharisees were there among the Sanhedrin sending out representatives to speak to John the Baptist and figure this out. Uh, they've been watching. Nicodemus came to him privately and respectfully by night. But here comes confrontation. G. Campbell Morgan writes about this confrontation that chapter 5 records, and you'll notice it gives it to us essentially as one continuous interaction in this chapter. Morgan writes this, he says, On the human level, what Jesus did that day and what he said that day cost him his life. They never forgave him. Our goal this morning is relatively modest. This morning we're going to set out the lay of the land in this chapter so that we can walk through it in some of the weeks to come. I'd like us to do three things together this morning. Number one, uh, I want us to cover the setting of this chapter, which is the first five verses. Uh, there are some things for us to deal with there and to help in understanding what's coming. So we'll do that first and relatively quickly. Second, I'd like us to zoom out then to the whole chapter to that level and note how the events in this chapter are, are, are on a progression. Uh, they lead somewhere, and they lead to exactly where Jesus intends them to lead. 
He's been, he's been working this from the beginning of this chapter, as we'll see. So we'll look secondly at that whole chapter level. And then thirdly, we'll zoom back in and move as far as what we'll call part one of that progression. We'll, we'll look at the miracle itself that Jesus is going to work. And that is the portion that we're going to read aloud now, is the first nine verses of John chapter 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We begin by understanding the setting of this, this event and where this event is going to go. Uh, it doesn't need to take us long to be caught up on where we are here. Last week, he was up in the region of Galilee. He had traveled through Samaria up into Galilee. And uh, as you can see at the beginning of this in verse 1, they are now returning back down into the region of Judea and down to Jerusalem. That's the setting of the miracle. The setting will change a bit in verse 14. They'll be inside the temple at that point. But many of these setting-type details are relatively simple and clear here. Now, we're not given the details as to exactly how much time has passed since chapter 4 ended. It just says, after this, uh, which does not give us anything as far as how long uh, he remained up in Galilee. It also does not tell us which feast Jesus is traveling down to Jerusalem to attend. There are several options, and there's a lot of speculation. Often what will happen in the Gospels in different places is that a given feast, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem for a feast, often it will be named in the text. And usually when that's happening, it seems like the event or dialogue that's about to come with Jesus winds up having some connection to the meaning of the feast. So often when the feast is mentioned, what we wind up finding is that Jesus is the fulfillment or is fulfilling some of what these feasts have been representing. It doesn't seem like that's the case in this particular passage, so it does not mention to us which feast it is. The opening event here, the one we've just read of, the healing itself, takes place in the northeast part of the city, at the Bethesda Pool. This is near an entrance into the city that's called the Sheep Gate. 
There's some debate about where exactly this is, but John points out to us something helpful here when he says that the pool has five porticos or five roofed colonnades. One thing that that does for us visually, or it it should, is it it helps us to understand that this is not really a small pool. This is a pool with probably rectangular, lots of surface area to get access to the pool. So lots of room for a large group of people to be nearby. And what we find about this particular pool is that by this time, it had become something of a place of local legend. This was a place where mystical healing was thought to take place. And that's the reason for all of the gathering of the invalids that are described here. Now, where do we get that information of this, of this uh, you could say, superstition? Well, we get it from his statement in verse 7. When he's complaining about not being able to get in, he says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. The stirring is likely because of some sort of a natural uh, access point to the water. Uh, uh, It's filled naturally, and often when that happens, geological events can result sometimes in there being a bubbling up of the waters. And from his statement alone, you can tell that the expectation is if he can get in first, he will be healed, but someone else keeps beating him into the waters. He can't get in before the rest. Another place that we get this information, though, is from the missing verse 4, you could say. Any of you using an ESV or an NIV will find that the text jumps from 3 to 5. Your Bible doesn't have a verse 4 in there. Uh, The rest of you will find it, but it'll probably be in brackets if it's in there, and it ought to be in brackets. It's very clear that verse 4 was not a part of what John originally wrote. What happened is in the course of transmission, scribes, and this happens in a number of places in the course of of history, they at at places felt the need, and I suppose the right, to add in clarifying information. Usually they do that in the margins, and at some points in some textual traditions, that would wind up getting into the text itself. But thankfully, it's it's not difficult to, to discern here that that's not part of what John wrote. The earliest manuscripts don't have it. And even the later traditions that do have it have discrepancies. They all don't agree with each other. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that the information that we're given there necessarily is not conveying truth to us. It doesn't mean that at all. And in fact, it's, it, it's, it seems very uh, likely that what was inserted in verse 4 there is giving us a correct explanation as to why they came to believe this about this pool. The insertion goes like this. I'll read from the New American Standard. For an angel of the Lord would go down at certain seasons into the pool and stir up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So this is the clarification that's given, that the reason they had all gathered was because of this belief that an angel would come down at times and and cause the water to be stirred up and, and supernatural healing could take place. Verse 3 gives a sampling of the sorts of illnesses or maladies that uh, people had that would try to come uh, here for healing. It gives us three categories, blind, lame, and paralyzed. 
And the man that Jesus is about to speak to is something of the third category, paralyzed. Verse 7, he needs someone to put him into the water. And he is heavily, he relies on that person enough that evidently doing that, getting him into the water, takes some time, time enough for someone else to beat him down into the pool. This is all the setting of what's about to take place. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It is crowded. Lots of people around because of the feast. And Jesus initiates conversation with this particular paralytic man who has been in this condition for 38 years. Now, before we look more closely at the miracle itself, I want us to pause here and zoom out again and look at the at the entire chapter, we need to notice something about this healing. We need to notice that this healing is not, in the, in the context here, it is not given to us as an end in itself. It is a means to an end. You can tell that because of how the account is written. There are a couple of times when this story could very easily have ended. John could have stopped this account, and he doesn't. One of them is the first part of verse 9. At the end of this healing, it says there, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. The present conflict is resolved. But it doesn't end there, does it? And in fact, what we find, even in verse 9 itself, is that we suddenly discover that there's maybe been something of a misdirection here uh, in John's telling us of this account. We find that in terms of this context... The really operative part of what Jesus just did, as it turns out, isn't going to be that he healed this man. The operative part is going to be a piece of information that John has chosen to not yet let us in on at that point. Let me read again verses 8 to 12 as a piece here. What is operative in this account in Jesus' action? Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, and notice what they ask him. They don't ask him who healed you. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? This is a bit unexpected in light of the amazing event that just took place. The part of this that winds up being pushed on and explored, the part that winds up mattering here, is the fact that Jesus told him to take up his bed and that this happened on the Sabbath. So you see, the story very quickly develops into the matter of the Sabbath. It goes away from the miracle into into a Sabbath controversy. And in a way that makes it seem like this was Jesus' intention all along. Doesn't it seem like that? But even there, this does not stop. Even the immediate conflict and dialogue does not stop. We can keep going. Because that leads to what would seem another reasonable end in verse 16. Verse 16, we read this, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
That resolves, explains and resolves that conflict, or it could. But even there, the story doesn't end. Look at verse 17. It immediately gives us Jesus speaking back to the religious leaders, and he keeps the dialogue going. He uses the the Sabbath controversy, the one that he created, to bring up another one. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that launches into verse 19 and onward. Which when we get there, and even before, we need to notice, 19 and on is not a new subject then from that, uh, that controversy that's mentioned there of Christ making himself equal with God. It's not a change of subject after that in the dialogue that follows. It's the giving of details as to what exactly Jesus is saying that creates that charge. Verse 19 and following is all about the nature of the father-son relationship that he enjoys with God. So then what we're seeing in this chapter is really three different focuses each of which lead right into the next. There's the miracle in 1 to 9, which creates the Sabbath controversy, 9 to 16. Jesus' reply to which creates the cause to what we could call the Christological identity controversy, the who is this man, who does he think he is controversy, in verses 17 and following. This is what we have in chapter 5. And I wanted us to see that from the beginning of our look at this chapter, because without it, we can miss something that the Gospels work very hard to make clear over and over again, and it's this, that when Jesus is going around in his earthly ministry, he is not traveling around doing a bunch of random good deeds for people. That is not what he is doing. He is doing a great many good deeds, is he not? Remarkable, but they are anything but random. He has come for a purpose. He's come with a message and he's come for a purpose. We've seen several times now in this study, we look back at Luke 19.10, Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. And if the lost are going to live, they're going to have to do what Jesus describes in verse 25 of this chapter. They're going to have to hear the voice of the Son of God. And just like we saw last week, that seeing isn't the same thing as seeing. Hearing isn't the same thing as hearing. They're going to have to hear the voice of the Son of God, but they're going to have to do more than just hear him audibly. They're going to have to have their eyes opened and come to recognize who this is they're hearing. And then they're going to have to choose to listen to him as the one that is the Son of God. Christ has come with a message of revelation, and the message is centered upon him, his identity, who he is. And that's the case in John's presentation here of the gospel, especially. That's why we're getting even closer every week to the famous seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. So there's a huge emphasis that is made clear to us in Jesus' ministry. This is his purpose. And so here in chapter 5, it's good for us to see 
that Jesus, yes, is doing a wonderfully kind thing in healing this man. But he does this intentionally setting off a controversy that results in a revelation of who he is. We need to see his intention in the way that this chapter goes. And we'll see that abundantly as we get to those places as well. This, the rest of our time this morning, we will simply look at the miracle itself, which is profound enough uh, for us this morning. And next week, we'll look more closely at the Sabbath controversy that it creates. But I would give attention for the rest of our time to three aspects of this particular miraculous event this morning. First one is very quick, but I, I, I think it is worth noticing. The first aspect to notice intentionally is the water. Just notice that yet again, what we have here is a better than water kind of picture going on. Is it beginning to sound familiar to you? In John 2, Jesus took the ritual purification water of Judaism, and his effect was immediately transformative, straight into fine celebratory wine. In John 4, he pointed out that the water from Jacob's well could not satisfy our ultimate thirst, but that he offered water that could. And now here in John 5, you have, again, water. This time, water that promises a healing that it cannot provide but that Jesus can. These things are not accidental. And it's not accidental that it's all happening and being given to us here in the same context of Jesus speaking about the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's come to bring to his people in terms of water that he has to offer that we might drink and never be thirsty again. We're supposed to notice this. The second two aspects of this situation in this event we'll take a bit more time on. The second one is the man himself, this man that Jesus interacts with and heals. In a sense, this is a fascinating individual. Unfortunately for him, it's not the kind of fascinating that is really a compliment. I've read many commentators writing about this individual, and it's never particularly positive. Uh, things like, he was not of the stuff that heroes are made of. He seems to have been an unpleasant creature. One of them speculated for a time about whether we should see this man as guilty of dullness or treachery. Because after he's healed, well, we'll, we'll get there, you'll see. He's going to go back and uh, tell on Jesus to those who are upset with him. And that man decided we should just accuse this individual of dullness rather than treachery. None of these are positive, positive things. And yet he's involved in such an incredible event here. Those commentators say the things they say because of the way this man conducts himself here. He clearly has no idea who this person is that he's talking to. Uh, Jesus has quite a following, quite a recognition now, not just in Judea, but also in Galilee. Uh, but this man has been laying beside this pool the entire time. He doesn't know. And so Jesus asks him in verse 6, do you want to be healed? And he responds with a lament that there is nobody there to help him. 
into the waters. And after the healing, in verse 12, you see the Pharisees ask him who healed him, and he doesn't know. I'm sure he is quite glad to have been healed. Yet after the Pharisees are clearly outraged, in fact, let's just look at this together quickly here. Look down to verse 12. This is the Pharisees interrogating him. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He's got to be excited at being healed. But after the Pharisees are clearly outraged at what has taken place, and he learns of Jesus' identity, he makes sure to go back and tell them who it was who healed him. He's more interested in ingratiating himself to the religious leaders of the day than he is in the man who just healed his 38-year paralysis with a word. And we'll see when we get to chapter 9 that there's probably an intentional comparison here between this man and the blind man that Jesus is going to heal in chapter 9. Just like the, the comparisons we were able to see between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. There's, a, there's quite a bit of pretty obvious negative, positive comparisons that we'll see. But the fact that he goes out and gives that information to the Pharisees is not given to us here to be seen as a good thing on the part of this individual. There's another negative that we find about this man, and I just read it from verse 14. It's that Jesus seems to say that in this man's particular case, again, Jesus giving evidence of knowing this man, as we've seen from earlier in John, Jesus knew all men. Jesus says that in this man's particular case, that his paralysis had been in some way connected to a sinful lifestyle or a sinful action in the past. Again, verse 14, Jesus said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's probably a point he makes here that we ought to dwell on for just a moment and be, be clear on in our thinking. There is really no way to take that sentence in any other way. The, the, the clause, sin no more, and the clause, nothing worse may happen to you, are tied together. There is no untying them. He says, stop sinning lest something worse happen to you. When we lived in Houston, we had a neighbor who was in his early 20s and who, because of past drug use, had rather serious mental and psychiatric problems that, as far as they could tell, were going to be permanent. If Jesus came to our street and healed that man, it would not be confusing if he were to say to him then, Stop sinning lest something worse happen to you. And we can affirm that and understand that's not at all a statement that each affliction that we suffer is directly tied to a particular sin, is it? It's not saying that at all. But one man summarized it helpfully, I think, when he wrote this. He said, the issue is not whether this man was a preeminent sinner, but whether some tragedies, and this one in particular, 
are seen as the outcome of specific sin? The answer is surely affirmative. This does not mean that everyone who commits these sins will inevitably fall ill or die. It does mean that some instances of suffering are the direct results of specific sins. And can I just ask, is that a controversial thing for us to say? I hope that it is not. If we understand the nature of sin as utterly destructive in every realm, spiritually destructive, physically destructive, mentally destructive, it should not surprise us at all to say such a thing, to draw such a a potential of connection between sin and effect. Now, you take all of these details that were given about this man, and there are some things that are quite clear then. It's quite clear that there is nothing inherent in this man that serves as a reason or a merit for being healed. Jesus simply heals him. He picks him out, and he heals him. In terms of the progressing story here, this is really significant because we have here a miracle done then, quite clearly, with no faith present on the part of the one being healed. He doesn't even know who Jesus is when he's speaking to him, much less is he putting some sort of saving trust on to Jesus. In fact, in this one, there's no faith present on the part of anybody in the situation. Last week with the royal official who came pleading with Jesus to save his son from death, there was, a, there was something different. There was a clear call to display true faith. He put it to the man in a challenge as he was pleading for the life of his son. And that man did choose to trust Jesus. You remember that last week? But this time there is no such thing. This man is being healed for one reason, and that is to put Jesus on display. Now, that leads us to the third element that we need to think about here, and and that is the healing itself. And this healing, would you agree, certainly does accomplish that. It does put Jesus on display. His power is displayed. His authority is displayed. That at a word, 38 years of paralysis are over and restored utterly. I mean, think about what that would entail for someone who is paralyzed and has been so for almost four decades. What has that done to his body? Think of the changes that must have taken place. At a word, his skeletal and muscular structure change. They are suddenly able, capable of carrying him around as he carries his mat around. I mean, surely, I'm no doctor, but surely if we are there and we're watching closely, the miracle must have been externally visible to the eye. There's one one way that focusing, as we're able to do this, this morning, on the miracle itself can benefit us in our own time today because it gives us the opportunity to focus on manifestations today of false miracles. Now, there's an entire theological framework built up today, extending across the world. And I know some of you have lived among that framework personally and have stories to tell. 
a framework that centers around claims and experiences surrounding God's miraculous works today that are simply anti-Christ. There's no other way to say that. They fly directly in the face of biblical witness. They put words and promises into the mouth of our Lord that he never spoke and thereby make a liar out of him. They create tremendous confusion and disillusionment to their great shame, disillusionment concerning how God works. And they directly contrast with the sorts of true miracles and healings that we find in Scripture. And what we saw this morning, this is just a quick look at this concept, isn't it? But even in what we've seen already about the man and about the healing itself, all of it can be helpful in clarifying this realm for us. Because what have we seen on display here? God's actions to heal do not depend on or wait on a human's exercise of faith. It is false, the conception of God, that he stands desiring to heal a person, hoping, fingers crossed, but oh, they just don't exercise faith, and so his intention fails. It's false. And when Christ heals in Scripture... And when his apostles heal in Scripture in his name, what kind of healing do we see? We see instantaneous, genuine, and lasting healing. These are both tests that current-day faith healing movements, like the word faith movement, fail today. That's one thing to notice here. Secondly, I think it's, it's likely... That, that, that what I'm about to say perhaps stems from the men's study that we began yesterday morning at Blake Autry's house on biblical contentment. But some of the things we reflected on there, they just come in very naturally into what we're seeing here. And I would close us with this, with this thought. Maybe a reminder of what we said at the beginning. We said that this miracle, this healing, in light of how this chapter is going to progress, is not an end in itself, but is a means to an end. It's worth reflecting on. And maybe especially worth reflecting on for those who sit here hearing this wonderful account of someone's misery being brought to an end by their Lord as they sit in a time of misery. How am I to think about this? How am I to think about God's purposes and his love as he heals here? And I've been praying, and I'm not being healed. It's helpful in those kinds of contexts to remember what we said here. This miracle is the means to an end. The true end is that men would know the glory of God and the person of his Son. That is the true end of this very chapter and this event, this miracle, this healing. Now we can hear, this is what I think we can do, we can hear that general statement. The true end we desire is that men would know the glory of God and the person of his son. We hear that general statement and what do we do? We rejoice. We can even rejoice in a non-general way when the result of the situation 
is something like healing. We can rejoice at the revelation of the glory of God. But the question is, what about when the result is the withholding of something like healing? What about then? And this is where God's revelation to us of himself is so crucial. What what kind of God do we see on the pages of Scripture? God is not in the business of randomness. And that means that whatever he does, anything he does, he does for a reason. When he heals, he does it for a reason. When he doesn't heal, he does that for a reason too. God does what he does because he is freely and joyfully working to bring glory to his name. That's why he does what he does. So where does that leave us? And this is where I'd suggest to you that it holds out to us one single word in particular. It offers us the word contentment. If our God is directing all things, and that would include then what he gives and what he withholds, if our God is directing all things for good, true good, then in any and every situation, I have the opportunity to choose contentment with his ways. And if I were to make that choice, such a choice would have to be stemming from a genuine awareness of God's goodness and of his wisdom. Only when I have really learned Christ in those ways can it be said of me that I take pleasure in God's choices. And it was very helpful yesterday morning over breakfast. One of the things we talked about is how utterly impossible it is for us to come to that place in some sort of a quick, early moment in time. But that it seems that this is what God is doing in our entire walk as Christians, is putting us through the school of learning contentment, which means the school of learning how to really trust in God's goodness and in his wisdom in all things. I'll give us just a taste here of what we feasted on in that reflection. This is what one old dead Puritan wrote about this sort of pleasure. It's the kind of thing that I usually try not to include in, in reading up here for obvious reasons, so we'll see how this goes. He wrote this, that is to say, the soul that has learned this lesson of contentment looks up to God in all things. He does not look down at the instruments and means. A contented heart looks to God's disposal and submits to God's disposal. What's that mean? That is, he sees the wisdom of God in everything. In his submission, he sees his sovereignty, but what makes him take pleasure is his knowledge of God's wisdom. The Lord, the Lord knows how to order things better than I. The Lord sees further than I do. I only see things at present, but the Lord sees a great while from now. And how do I know but that had it not been for this affliction, 
I should have been undone. Excuse me. I know that the love of God may as well stand with an afflicted condition as with a prosperous condition. There are reasonings of this kind in a contented spirit, submitting to the disposal of God. And I think that second to last sentence is, is the one that applies. I know, speaking of a contented heart, and isn't this our, our desire? Don't we want to be here? I know that the love of God may as well stand with an afflicted condition as with a prosperous condition. So as we see such things as we see in our passage this morning, the call is to marvel at them, and we marvel at this healing, at this miracle, but the call is to marvel at it properly, to marvel at it as one who sees such things on earth to be the means to a greater, an eternal end. It's very much like what Jesus said in a different context to his disciples in Luke 10, 20, after they experienced miraculous giftings in his name, and they were very excited about it and rejoicing. You remember what Christ said to them? He said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's be reminded this morning that our God is accomplishing his purposes, not in good circumstances and despite bad circumstances, but through all circumstances. And by that reminder, may God enable us to give him thanks in every circumstance. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, your only begotten Son, your perfect, precious Son, our great God and King, our Lord, our friend, our Redeemer. There is nothing for us to hide from you. You know how quickly we cast our eyes and our cares, our hope, on temporal blessing. And you have been so generous with it, Father, and we thank you. But God, in light of how you have fed us with your word today, I pray, I ask you to increase our appetites for the glory of your Son in our time. And if it be necessary that that happen by us being weaned from the pleasures of this world that this world has to offer. As that be the case, Father, help us to trust you and in all things to thank you for your good and your Christ-exalting purposes. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's with that same desire for an eternal mindedness, even as we're living out our lives here and now. We bring that same desire when we come to the Lord's table, as we now do. Our Lord gave us this ordinance 